another bonus episode of Sleep Whispers, an extra treat for my Silk Plus members. This is bonus episode number 90, and it is titled A Wilderness Survival Story, Part 3, Bark Dippers, Deadfalls, and Tree Compasses. If you haven't listened to part two yet, then hit pause and go enjoy that episode. If you have listened to part two already, then I'll remind you what happened. In part two, you learned about the challenges of creating a good shelter, but you also learned some helpful tips to create a good shelter and even more ways to find food. In this episode, you'll learn how to fish without a hook, how to catch a furry animal without any bait, and how to find true north without the sun. Now, as a reminder, what you are about to hear is a helpful survival guide, but it's written to sound like a fictional and dramatic survival story. But listen closely, and you will hear actual tips that may help you in a survival situation, or don't worry about any of that, and just lay back and enjoy the drama and adventure of the story. Either way, may it distract your squirrels so you can slowly drift off to sleep. I hope you enjoy it. My Wilderness Survival Story, Part 3, Bark Dippers, Deadfalls, and Tree Compasses. Although my next big mission would be focused on traps, I still needed to make sure that I had some dinner for tonight. I decided that getting more fish now would be wise, especially if my traps didn't get any food today. I started again for the brook. I was carrying a supply of hemlock roots and my trusty spear. It occurred to me that by braiding the fine roots together, I could make a fishing line. Uh, but there was a problem. I didn't have a hook. How the heck was I going to catch a fish without a hook? But then I had an idea. Maybe it would be easier if I removed the water from a small water inlet that contained some fish. I decided to try my plan of bailing the water out of a pool 
experimenting with making a hook. I looked around for a water inlet that would be just right because some were just too small and didn't have any fish in them or they were too large and there was no way I was going to be able to create a pool that I could remove most of the water out of. Eventually, I did find a suitable water inlet that contained several fish. I piled gravel and small rocks in all the visible crevices which connected this pool of water with the rest of the brook. I did this very carefully so the fish didn't slip out between the stones. Once I finished, I piled rocks across the little channel where the brook ran into the pool. I also filled all the crevices with grass, twigs, and mud until the water was diverted to one side. At last, success, the pool with its fish, now remained cut off from the rest of the water, and it looked like the fish were trout, which was also a good thing, because those are some tasty fish. All I had to do now was to scoop out the water, and that would leave the trout floundering about on the bottom, and I could just pick them up with my hands. Easy peasy, right? <laughs> no, I didn't really have anything to scoop all that water out of this small pool that I just created. I know what you're thinking. I did have a way to scoop the water out with my hands. So, let me tell you how that went. As fast as I could throw that water out with my little hand scoop, more water flowed in through tiny crevices of the dam I had built. Yeah, it, it wasn't a perfect dam. So there was no way that scooping out a little bit at a time would work, meaning I couldn't do it fast enough. Yeah, I gave up. It wasn't possible. Then it occurred to me that I did have a scoop on myself, meaning on my body, besides my hands. It was one of my shoes. Oh. I know you're thinking, oh, that sounds gross, but it's not gross when you're trying to get dinner. I was starting to get hungry. I didn't care about a little bit of shoe stink getting into the water where my dinner was swimming around. So I removed the shoe and I gave it a try, and it definitely worked better than just scooping water out with my hands, but it still didn't work 
well enough. If I used my shoe and I scooped really, really fast, then it did seem that I was removing water out of the pool faster than it was refilling. But the big problem was I was burning a lot of calories doing this. I could feel myself just sweating profusely. So this didn't really make any sense because I would probably lose more calories than I could gain from those fish. I looked around for a better idea and there was this nearby birch tree and a lot of the bark was falling off it or had fallen off it and was just lying on the ground and that gave me an idea. I had used birch bark before to create drinking cups many times. Now, that may sound strange to you, because you're a city slicker, so you're not hanging out in the woods all the time and experimenting with stuff, but it works. The birch bark holds water. Also, when I was camping with Joe, I had seen him use birch bark to create boxes and packs and even utensils. Like, this stuff is like helpful cardboard out here. <laughs> but so much better. In fact, Joe showed me once that water could be boiled in a birch bark dish. I know that's nuts. <laughs> You'd think that the bark would just light on fire but it didn't. <laughs> all right, enough blap-de-blap about all this bark. What I was thinking was that I could make a large scoop or a dipper out of the birch bark. It took me just a few moments to strip a fresh sheet of bark from a nearby tree and then just a few more moments to bend it and shape it into this deep box-like shape to have it hold its shape. I easily secured it together using those hemlock roots that I brought with me. And then finally, ta-da, I now had a bark that could easily hold a gallon of water. Yeah, a gallon of water. That's much more than my shoe could do. I went ahead and started scooping the water out of the pool so I could grab the fish more easily. Sure enough, in a very short time, the depth of the water was reduced to only an inch or two. And at the bottom of this now very shallow pond were several bright-colored fish flopping among the stones. 
I was able to get four fine trout as a reward for my labors. And yeah, I was quite joyful about that. I not only had created this dipper for scooping water, but I could also use this bark device as a basket. So I placed my fish inside the bark dipper and I covered it with cool leaves. I set them in the bushes beside the brook so I could grab them on my way back from making traps. Running the fish all the way back to camp and then going out to make the traps seemed like a waste of energy and carrying the fish with me the whole time also just seemed like a waste of energy. So I was trying to be smart about it. It was now time to head to where I think some muskrats were and time to set a trap. To be candid, I really didn't know what sort of food muskrats eat. So, I really couldn't use a food trap that had bait in it. Instead, I'd create a type of trap that you sort of just put in the path of where an animal walks. And you hope they just step into it, or step onto it, or trigger it somehow. The one I was going to create would basically involve a large heavy log that would fall onto the muskrat when it bumped a little trigger stick. This type of trap is called a deadfall. To create it, I first placed a smooth stick of wood across the trail where it walked. On either side of the trail, among the grass, I drove two stakes with a space of a few inches between them. In this space, I slipped a fairly heavy log, which I had found beside the pond. I then lashed the tops of the stakes together so the log could easily slide up and down between the stakes, which served as guides. Across that lashing of roots, I laid a light stick, and for a trigger, I selected a L-shaped twig, and from one end of this, I tied a strong root. The other end of the fastening was looped about the heavy log. The big log was raised just a few inches above the log set in the pathway, and the trigger was placed across the light stick between the uprights. Next, a very light stick was placed just above the lower log, and the end of the trigger was placed resting against this. 
was describing all that was something like log, 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 twig, 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 trigger, trigger, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I'm sure what I just described sounds very complicated, but it is actually a very simple arrangement, and it may be helpful if you look up some pictures of a deadfall. Anyway, here's the basic premise or mechanism. If any creature attempts to pass over the log that I put on the ground, it would move the trigger stick, and that would cause the big log to fall onto it. <laughs> I know, that doesn't sound very nice, and I totally agree. I don't like doing this either, but keep in mind that I'm not doing this for fun or sport, but these are the tough things that need to be done to survive in the woods. Now, of course, the dang thing may not even work. Traps are unpredictable and therefore unreliable. So, on my way back to camp, I spent some time gathering some frogs from the pond. Frogs and fish today, and maybe some muskrat tomorrow, or never. Who knows? Tonight would be an all-surf and no-turf kind of meal. I soon reached the brook, and I could see the pool that I had emptied was almost totally refilled again with water. But that didn't matter, because I had already captured my fish. I reached inside the bushes to grab my prized trout that I'd hidden there inside the bark dipper. But my astonishment, the bark dipper was dipped over, and there wasn't a single trout to be seen anywhere. I wondered if the fish had dipped the container over and had flip-flopped themselves back into the water, but that seemed unlikely that they made that journey successfully. I would have expected some to have flip-flopped themselves in the opposite direction of the pond and just be laying nearby on the ground. Yet there wasn't any fish in sight. No, this was not a flip-flop situation. This was probably a lucky predator. Some other animal must have come along and snatched my prized trout. <sighs> I was heartbroken, but I only had myself to blame. I had left the trout so carelessly within reach of any four-footed thief. It was quite the disappointment to be 
deprived of my expected feast. There was nothing to be done except to drain another pool and capture more fish. That is, if I wanted to eat trout today. Dang, though, I was curious to discover what sly beast had stolen my fish. I looked carefully in the soft earth and among the vegetation for signs of footprints. I soon discovered a number of tracks which I recognized as those of a fisher cat or sometimes just called a fisher. This is a dumb name because this animal is neither a cat nor an animal that often goes fishing. But if it discovers some helpless fish in a bark dipper left by some coconut brain individual, then you can bet that it will grab those fish. Now, how would I describe this thieving animal to you? I'd say that it looks like a weasel, and it sure did weasel my fish. Surprisingly, although it is a very good climber, it spends most of its time on the forest floor. It's a carnivore that eats rabbits and porcupines, but it does also eat some fruits and mushrooms. My first thought was to set a trap to capture the fisher cat. This was probably motivated by revenge rather than survival. I remembered, though, that Joe had told me that fisher cats were not good eating. He had explained that they were much more valued for their fur than for their meat. I decided to abandon the idea of chasing down that fisher cat. It could prove to be a waste of time. Instead, I just set about draining another pool. I'd done it once, so I knew I could do it again. And this time, my park dipper was already constructed and ready to go. After going through all the same motions as before to drain the pool area, I soon had a couple of new trout. But I wasn't going to stash these in any bushes for another fisher cat to find. No way, Jose. This time, I put my prize trout in my park dipper, and I headed right back to camp. That night, I had a fine feast of frogs and fish. How is that for a delightful culinary alliteration? Yeah, so delightful that I'm going to say it again, because it makes me smile for so many reasons. A fine feast of frogs and fish. Go ahead and say it 
yourself, you'll smile too. With my belly full, I tucked in for the night, knowing that the next day would be another busy one. In the morning, I wondered if my log trap had caught a muskrat meal. But first, I set about a new mission that I'll call Operation Compass. Being able to go out into the woods and find my camp again is a critical part of my survival or anyone's survival. I needed to be confident that I could properly orient myself in the woods so I didn't get lost. Of course, the location of the sun helps a lot. Everyone knows that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Yet, the sun isn't very helpful at noon or on cloudy days. I wanted to discover some other way that I could distinguish north, south, east, and west. I went ahead and started into the woods while the sun was low. I wanted to figure out what might help me to maintain a straight course through the forest. As soon as I was well into the woods, I looked around carefully for any details which would be of use. As I had already mentioned, I had heard that moss grew more abundantly on one side of trees than the other, but I had forgotten which side it was. Regardless, I examined the trees closely, but I didn't see that these growths were any thicker on one side than the other. Well, so much for that. However, glancing up and down the trunks in search of the moss growths, I noticed something else. One side of every tree was dark-colored and damp, whereas the other side was grayish and drier. I soon noticed that the damp side corresponded to the north side, as determined by my glimpse of the sun above the river. I was quite elated by this. Looking more closely, I now noticed that the moss did appear heavier on the damp side of the trees than on the dry side of the trees. I checked out more trees, and I could also see that the branches, twigs, and leaves were thicker and more regular on the south side of the trees than on the north side. Additionally, I noted that more dried and dead branches projected from the north side of the trees 
them from the south side. If all of these observations were correct, then I could orient myself quite easily in the woods, even if it was a cloudy day or noontime. I knew that my next step was to do a test rather than just assume my observations were correct. With my eyes closed, I walked slowly about for some time with my arms in front of me like a zombie. I kept bumping into trees and tripping over fallen branches, but I was doing it all for science. Once I felt I had lost my sense of direction, I opened my eyes. Looking around, I definitely was disoriented and unsure which way to go back to my camp. But once I looked at the trees, it was easy for me to tell which way was north. I was now more confident that I wouldn't be getting lost in the woods. I stood there proudly with my hands on my hips until a flash of movement caught my eye. I wasn't sure if it was my imagination or the actual movement of something living. Again, there it was. A large rabbit, or maybe a hare, scampered from the base of one distant tree to another. I could see it now. Its head was down, nibbling on something at the base of the tree. I remained as still as a statue, watching it closely. The rabbit, once again, scampered to the base of another tree and began nibbling. I slowly crept forward, hoping, by some strange miracle, that I could capture it with my hands. I held my breath and quietly crept forward. If I could capture this rabbit, then this would be the crowning achievement of my day. This is the end of part three. Stay tuned for part four. Thank you for supporting my podcasts. I truly appreciate it.